Thank you for tuning in. It's no longer about getting personal identifiable information, and it's no longer about being a nuisance. Cybercrime today is about access to data, extortion, and ransoms being paid. It's real and it's scary, and any firm, large or small, can and is being targeted. And the incidence and the magnitude of impact is only increasing. As leaders, we need to know about it and we need to know how to act. And that's our focus for today. Our guests on the podcast are Dale Crow, a professional liability attorney and experienced insurance broker, and Rob Rosenzweig, a cybersecurity and risk management expert, both senior vice presidents at Risk Strategies. And in this episode, we get into the history of cybercrime, how things are different today, why our firms are being targeted, where most penetrations come from, what can be done to stop them, and what are all the things that need to happen if and when we've been compromised. I also want to state here that I have no business relationship with Dale or Rob or Risk Strategies, but I do have a deep appreciation for their knowledge and their willingness to come on the podcast and share with us all about the increasing risks and the real ransom demands happening right now in AEC, along with specific strategies and actions that can be taken now to help mitigate our risk and minimize loss so that we can better protect ourselves, our people, and our clients. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today is a first here on the podcast. There will be three of us, plus, of course, all of you. And we'll be speaking with Dale Crow a professional liability and risk management attorney and senior vice president at Risk Strategies, a return guest to the podcast, and Rob Rosenzweig, the national cyber risk practice leader serving across industries and market sectors, and who's also a senior vice president at Risk Strategies. And we'll be talking about digital and cyber risks and strategies for better security. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. All right. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover, so let's just dig right in. Um, maybe, Dale, beginning with you, can you share a little bit about you, your career, and what you focus on today in terms of our industry and cyber risk and security? Absolutely. Um, I, I jokingly say I'm, I'm a recovering attorney. I spent about uh, 10 years in Nashville, Tennessee, litigating, um, litigating claims primarily against architects and engineers. So um, we did a lot of con contractual negotiations and, and issues as well. But um, that's, a, that's been a, a background of mine after spending uh, about 10 years doing that. Then I moved over to the, to the lovely world of insurance. And the, the beauty of it is that, you know, in that prior life, when I, was, uh, when I was called in, it was usually after something had gone wrong, right? And, and now, I get to use that experience uh, in seeing those things that went wrong to try to educate uh, and prepare our clients to avoid and mitigate what risks they can uh, in design and construction. And uh, although I'm a, a trained professional liability attorney, um, you know, in, in the environment in which we all operate now, cybersecurity, cyber liability has become a big part uh, of what we do, which is exactly why when, when I was lucky enough for you to reach out about joining you again. I thought it'd be a great idea to bring in Rob, uh, who is the, the chair of our national cyber practice. All right. Well, with that, Rob, um, can you share a little bit about your background in, um, in cyber and um, how you interface with the AEC industry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my, my, my career has entirely been in the world of insurance. So, so unlike my colleague, Dale, not, not a recovering attorney myself, 
uh, you know, my my background in the insurance industry, which which has been going on 15 years now, has been entirely in what we would call the financial line sector of insurance. So that's that's the broader product suite that that covers risk emanating from professional liability, cyber risk, technology, as well as management liability, directors and officers, and, and employment practices. Um, you know, not not surprisingly, you know, the risks we talk about today when we when we say cyber really were born out of the onset of technology in the early aughts and, and the, the Y2K fear. Um, so, you know, that, that's been some, an area of focus of mine my entire career, but, but certainly as technology has become more prevalent across all industries, the, the reality of the risks our clients are facing has, has become more prevalent uh, across all industry sectors and, and clients of all size and, and specific to, you know, partnering with Dale and other colleagues within our professional services practices, um, you know, while architects and engineers and other professional services firms don't necessarily have a wealth of personal identifiable information, they, like other industries, have become extremely reliant on technology and are also an attractive target for cyber criminals. So. Uh, we, we regularly work with, with Dale and others within our professional services practice just to make sure our, our clients understand the landscape they're dealing with, um, do, doing all the right things to the extent you can to reduce the probability of having an incident, but, but ultimately working with our clients uh, to get the right solutions in place to get them the insurance coverage they need to, to fund the investigation and response to any sort of data security incidents. Well, great. Well, I can't wait to dig into a lot of what you just mentioned. Um, but as we begin, maybe we can start with you, Rob. From your perspective, how has the digital threat landscape changed? Uh, and maybe in general over the last few years, but in particular, maybe over the last year and, and with COVID? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think a few things to unpack here, um, you know, one of which isn't necessarily related to COVID, but I think COVID has, has probably um, exacerbated it. So, you know, when, again, when you think about the world of cyber criminals, um, you know, this, this is, you have some state-sponsored groups, but this is something that, that organized crime is, is heavily involved in. So you have to keep in mind, at the end of the day, you know, the reason they're trying to gain access to the systems and data of legitimate businesses and private individuals is because they want to monetize that level of access to, to return a profit, right? Their investment is whatever they're doing to gain access to our systems. They want to profit on that investment, get a return there. Um, you know, if we were having this conversation five, six years ago, you know, the majority of the schemes that cyber criminals were, were executing involved targeting companies that had significant amounts of personal identifiable information, whether that be names, social security numbers, credit card numbers, or in the case of, of you know, PHI, personal health information, because they could steal that information and they could sell it on the black market or the dark web for, for a significant profit. Um, you know, as, as things have changed, right, and, you know, we've gotten better at, at responding to those types of incidents. So think about, you know, in your own personal life, if your credit card number is stolen, you call Amex, you call your bank, you get a new credit card in 24 hours, and they back out those fraudulent transactions. So, so the value of that type of data for a criminal that wants to, to, to rack up fraudulent transactions has, has diminished. So cyber criminals had to evolve and think about another way of monetizing their level of access. And that's where we saw a shift in the last couple of years to ransomware becoming by far and away the most prevalent type of attack. And, and for those of you in the audience listening today or, or whenever you're catching this podcast that aren't familiar with what ransomware means or, or what it does at, at a high level, it is a type of malware that cyber criminals are able to execute on, on a target, targeted company's network that encrypts your data and systems that you're reliant upon. And then the criminals extort the affected organization for a large sum of money in exchange for giving you a decryption key to regain access to your data and your systems. So so going back to my comment at the top about how this has become increasingly relevant for professional service firms and architects and engineers in particular, uh, you don't have a lot of information, but you are reliant on systems and you do have designs and other data that are housed on those systems that you need in order to do what you do for your clients. Uh, so, so this type of of crime uh, has, has really kind of expanded the attack surface for cyber criminals. So instead of just going after big box retail, 
healthcare, uh, financial services firms, this has kind of opened up the realm of, of we can go after any business because any business would readily pay us a significant ransom demand to regain access to their system. So that, that changed the landscape quite a bit uh, and, and also changed the, the dollars associated with the types of cybercrime we're seeing. Uh, with respect to COVID, you know, I think there's a couple things there. I mean, one, um, obviously everybody switched to this this remote working environment pretty rapidly about a year ago uh, last week. And some companies did it well. Some companies didn't do it so well. So the companies that did it well, I, I think the technology was sound and, and there wasn't any increased vulnerability. But if, if you didn't have that remote access, the ability to VPN back into companies' networks set up securely, that did leave some holes that cyber criminals could exploit. Uh, but, but I think the, the more pressing piece of it, which, which still holds some water and we're still seeing cyber criminals make hay with 12 months later, is you know, some of what our clients have done over the last few years in implementing the right risk management practices, uh, and I'm not talking about technology solutions, I'm talking about you know, people and processes, how you train your employees and what your procedures are to prevent cyber crime. Um, hasn't worked as well when your workforce is distributed as it is when your workforce is on site, right? So questioning everything. I got an email from Dale. Did it actually come from Dale? Well, if we were in the same office, I'd walk down the hall and say, hey, Dale, did you send me this? Is this link legitimate? Did you actually want me to wire $100,000 out the door to X, Y, and Z? Well, when we're not all together, sometimes those those basic steps, the, that validation, that secondary authentication isn't happening. And when you layer on top of that, people using their own personal devices, the technology not necessarily being deployed correctly, uh, and you know, dogs barking and kids screaming doing remote learning, uh, you, you, you make it a lot easier for, for cyber criminals to exploit vulnerabilities. Mm, well, thank you. That, that is a tremendous summary of the landscape as far as threats and really articulating how today is different you know, with the different targets. I, I mean, Dale, for you, what you see day in and day out with the with the AE industry, um, what do you see to, as, far, as, as far as, is it just large firms? Is it small firms? Is it just ransomware? I mean, what, what do you see sort of directly within the industry? Yeah, I mean, it's in some ways, the, the AEC exposure is really no different than any other company, right? Um, in, in terms of the types of events we're seeing, lots of ransomware, invoice manipulation, uh, those sorts of things. And I think we'll talk a little more in detail. But, you know, I, and I think you and I have talked about this offline before. I, I continue to believe that for the most part, um, the AEC community is, is viewed more as the conduit, a conduit to the, to the larger um, the larger type institutions that have more of that information that the criminals are trying to gain. Um, you know, to, to answer your question about the type, the size of firm, all over the board, right? From some of the largest clients that we represent to the some of the smallest and, and really everything in between. And, um, you know, perhaps it, it's just anecdotal, um, but I don't think, you know, I think Robin, his team and what he said proves that it's not. But when we all went home, um, in March, uh, I, I felt like it just everything elevated. We were just, it was just more and more people reaching out to me saying, you know, we, we can't access our system where we've got a, we've got some type of ransomware demand. We've got this or we've got that issue. Um, and so I think companies of all sizes and firms in the AEC world of all sizes are, are dealing with it. Um, and, you know, and, and again, I, I think f thinking about it as well, if we want to go after this, you know, multinational, enormous corporation, they're going to have all these sophisticated, very expensive systems. They're going to be hard to penetrate. Um, they're going to be a lot of people, you know, watching the watching the bank, so to speak. Um, and and I think there is this perceived um, perceived notion, anyway, and and I think in some sense correct uh, by by the, the the wrongdoers here, the bad actors that. That a you know a, a smaller engineering firm in wherever you know any town USA uh, who happens to be performing professional services for one of these larger entities and might be housing certain information from that entity related to the project or financial components or PI I mean you know whatever it could be 
Um, that's an easier way for us to gain access to, to the more sophisticated, higher cost defended, um, defended entity that we're ultimately trying to gain. And so I think, you know, one of the questions becomes, um, do these large owners, you know, think of them as owners who are buying A&E services, um, when they begin their thoughts of selecting a, a consultant for their project, do, is one of their sort of selection process criteria, what kind of, what kind of protections does this firm have in place um, to, to safeguard what we're going to be sharing with them, whether it's you know, a healthcare project or transportation, I mean, a water treatment system. I mean, you, know, you can think of all the types of projects that would be you know, potentially a higher risk target, if you will. So I, that's what I wonder. We see more and more contracts requiring our clients to carry cyber liability coverage, but it's still percentage-wise, it's a small percentage anyway that I see. Um, but but I do wonder as things continue, will will the buyers of those services start deciding in some part who they choose by how well they believe their information will be protected? Hmm. Well, I want to get into some of that, including uh, the, the mechanics of what what it looks like um, when when we've been penetrated. But before we, we get into that, I, maybe just to drill down, you had mentioned invoice manipulation. Is, is that the software engineering? And, and just kind of quickly, how prevalent is is that, you know, with more electronic payments happening and not just writing checks and sending them in the mail? Is, is that a, from a cyber protection perspective, should we be as concerned with that or just it's on the radar with ransomware being number one, but we've really got to focus on the, on the uh, software engineering? No, I, so I think of it as not, not really, I mean, Rob can tell me if I get wrong here, but you know, I, I think of social engineering as a little different than, than invoice manipulation. Okay. And what, what I have seen um, happen, I mean, dozen or more times in, in, you know, in, in the last year is, is a situation where uh, an engineering client is, is sending out its invoice, right? Every 30 days to be paid um, and it's not being paid. And 90 days go by, for example, and the engineering firm reaches out to, to its client and says, hey, you know, you haven't paid our last three invoices. What's up? Um, and the, the buyer of those services says, no, we have. Uh, we've, we've paid every single invoice you sent. You know, what do you mean? Uh, and then we come to find out, well, guess what? The, the, the actual invoice that was being sent um, to, uh, to the buyer, so to speak, um, the, the routing information, for example, to, to transfer the funds has been manipulated and changed. And so the last three, you know, in my hypothetical, the last three 30-day invoices were paid to a criminal. Um, so yes, I mean, that, that is something that, that we definitely are seeing. Uh, and then it becomes an issue, right, of, well, is it on our end or, I mean, our client's end or, or is the issue on, on the buyer of the services end? And, you know, and I, I think, frankly, that's, that's when firms need to get really buckled down, get their carrier and broker involved. Um, it is so easy for you know you to rely, especially a smaller firm. I will just say, I don't you know, don't mean to suggest that smaller firms don't get the same type of support that a large firm does from an IT situation, uh, you know, point of view. But it's it is somewhat easy, and I've seen this happen to where for the for the, e, for the AE firm to say, you know, look, our, our IT folks say we're fine. We we haven't. You know, there's no problem. This is on. This is on your end, and it's not always that simple. Um, in fact, it, through my experience, it, it hadn't been that simple yet. Um, I'm sure there's got to be a simple one out there, but I, I just I bring Rob all the, the tough ones. But um, you know, so it's really I, my suggestion based on what I've seen for those of listening and thinking about um, being proactive is if you find yourself in that situation where uh oh, you know, all we know is we haven't been paid, and they're saying they've been paying us. You, you really need to activate your, your cyber liability coverage and your carrier uh, and to, to find out exactly what's happened uh, and to see if, if you have been uh, penetrated or infiltrated. In uh, but that, that, that is a very common thing we are seeing. Um, I'm sure Rob's seeing that in other lines, but, but that's something in the AE world that I've seen several times. Right. Well, one just a, one question on that before we get into some of the mechanics. Uh, what, what, the penetration, is it mostly through VPNs or kind of the, 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 the private perimeter systems that are around a firm? Does it, do you see any trends? Is it coming through all the third-party software systems that we have to download and use for our work, the Zoom, the, the MS Teams, and you know, other software systems? I mean, where do you, is there any trends that you see on where the penetrations are happening? 
I, I mean, I'll let Rob speak to that. My, my anecdotal experience with the claim events I've handled is a lot of it is your, 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 your best and first line of defense is your people. And it's coming in through an email phishing type of attack. Uh, there may be a better technical word, but but that to me, that's what I've seen where we saw recently where where somehow through an email um, penetration, they were able to change a rule in the outlook to where the email would be redirected, um, you know, and the firm didn't even know about it. I mean, they had no idea about it. Their IT vendor had no idea about it uh, until this was happening. So I, my, my experience tells me email. I don't know if Rob has anything to add to that, but that's what I've seen. I mean, I think it depends to a degree on the criminal group you're dealing with and, and the type of attack that they're trying to perpetrate. But, you know, if we're talking specifically about this this sort of invoice manipulation scheme, if that's their, their goal is to find some sort of financial data and, and divert a transaction and step in between, nine times out of ten, it's Dale's right. It's an employee. It's, it's, it's as simple as somebody getting an email that they think is legitimate, prompting them to put in their user username and password. They think they're logging into, you know, Office 365 in their web browser, or they think they're getting a DocuSign email. They key in their username and password, and you've just given the bad guys the keys to the castle. And, and what Dale said is exactly what they do. Not only are they monitoring traffic to see who you correspond with, what types of transactions, communications you're involved in, and then when they can step in, but they implement rules so that, if, if somebody calls into question the email that they've received from you, that never makes its way into your inbox. Um, that's going to a, an account that the criminal is, is monitoring themselves. Well, interesting. You know, so, so much, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to speak over you, that so much I, I think of so many of the, the ones I've seen, um, and it's easy, right, for somebody in my position to say, well, you, you know, you could have avoided this by doing that. And I, no one likes to be, you know, preached at. Um, but but what, what I've seen, a lot of those things could have been avoided with a phone call. Right, but there was some type of verbal confirmation or authorization. But it kind of goes back to what Rob was saying at the outset. Like we're, you know, we're so reliant on technology. It's a fast-paced business environment. We're we're texting and, and emailing from our phones a thousand miles an hour, and everyone's busy. And I get it. So it's it's um, it's 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 certainly reasonable to think that we will have more of those situations where it could have been avoided by by some type of verbal confirmation. But some of my firms who have experienced this have put in place certain protocols uh, with their clients, where at least they they feel they put in writing somewhere early in this in you know somewhere early in the process that no no routing information, for example, will change without a you know a verbal discussion, without some type of confirming discussion. And, and, you know, I think that's, that's a good step in the right direction. Well, if, if we can, I'd love to walk through what a materialized attack looks like. I mean, with that ransomware being sort of the number one problem out there that you see, I mean, maybe Rob, can you walk us through, I mean, how, if, if there's been a compromise, how does the business find out that there's been, uh, that they've been compromised and, and that, you know, someone is wants something from them or they want to sell them this encrypted key um, from the time, how are they, from the time that they find out, what does finding out look like? And then all the way until maybe they're hopefully back online. Can you kind of walk us through sort of a, a scenario that a common scenario you see? Yeah, uh, certainly at a, at a high level. And, and obviously there's degrees of this, right? But the most common way it becomes apparent is users don't have any access to systems that they're reliant on. So your users aren't getting email and your IT team goes to check, wait, why is the email server down? Okay, now we think we have a problem. Um, you know, the it, it all depends on the type of ransomware variant that we're dealing with, um, how many servers, devices on the network have been impacted by it, but it, it is looked to a degree what you see in the movies, right? Somebody signs on and you got a big scary message on your computer and there's there's literally nothing you can do to, you know, data that might be in databases that you're reliant upon uh, for applications that you use or, or, you know, files on your file server that just have been encrypted and you try to open them and you can't do anything with that data. Uh, typically, these, these criminal groups are, are reaching out through some means to, to express what their extortion demand is. Um, you know, the, the part of the value in having an insurance policy and, and ultimately an incident response plan in place is that that also comes with access to 
the expert team of vendors that can deal with the investigation and response and be a resource for your your firm. So that's you know highly specialized legal counsel that does nothing but this and forensic investigative response firms that that also do nothing but investigate these types of incidents. And, and there's a number of factors, right? I mean these these ransomware variants. There's they see enough of the same strain and the same criminal groups at play. Um, that they know who they can negotiate with, who might be bluffing, who isn't bluffing. Uh, so there's there's often a back and forth to see whether we can get that ransom demand, which might start at a few million dollars, down to, to something that's a little bit more palatable. In some cases, you know, it might be a ransomware variant that, that the forensic investigative response firms have figured out how to decrypt without having a need to pay uh, the extortion demand. In some cases, and, and this is some of the things we focus on with our clients from a risk management perspective, if you're doing regular backups of your data and that that those backups are stored off-site where they can't be impacted by the ransomware, maybe you don't need to pay the ransom demand because we could just restore our, our data from, from a backup we took yesterday that we're confident is clean and isn't attacked by the ransomware. Um, so there's, there's degrees of how this can kind of transpire. Uh, I, I would say, you know, based on... Unfortunately, the efficacy of the ransomware variants that are out there, um, the vast majority of time, our clients are forced to pay because backups are usually encrypted as well. Um, you know, the outages that our, our clients are dealing with can, you know, at a minimum, I would say, would be a week, couple weeks. Uh, sometimes have have, you know, downstream implications that last far longer than that in terms of data that can't be restored and needs to be replaced. Um, but the other scary piece of this, and, and this is sort of a recent change over the last couple quarters, not only are most of our clients forced to pay, not only are the ransom demands higher, multi-million dollars, but in the vast majority of incidents, the criminals are actually making a second ransom demand on their way out the door, regardless of whether or not you paid the ransom demand to decrypt your data. They're actually taking your data and saying, well, thanks for, thanks for paying us to decrypt your data. We actually also took your information, and if you don't pay us a second ransom, we're going to publish all your sensitive data on the internet. So. Well, uh, well, that sounds great. Um, so, so the, the, the double dipping of the of the criminals. How? I mean, it's sort of unseemly and sort of unspoken about in a lot of circles. I mean, you hear about people paying a ransom and firms having to pay ransom, insurance companies paying ransom. I, I mean. What what does that look like? Well, I guess first of all, how is it truly a lot more pervasive than we talk about? And and what are the mechanisms for doing that? Is that is that Bitcoin? Is it cash? Uh, how, what does that look like? It is unfortunately as as pervasive and per probably more pervasive than anybody realizes. I mean, this is this is such a you know not to to get into the weeds on the insurance side of things, but um, you know. The insurance market has gone into turmoil over the last couple quarters, where you know insurance carriers that are writing cyber liability insurance are scaling back the breadth of coverage. They're reducing the limits that they're willing to offer, and they're looking for rate increases in in the 30 to 40 percent range. And and there are other reasons, but the main correlation there is the impact that ransomware is having on the profitability of their business. Um, you know, in terms of the mechanics of payment, a lot of a lot of nuances there that we can get into if, if we want to, but you know, at, at, at a minimum, I would say this, it, it is typically Bitcoin or some sort of other digital currency. Um, ransom demands on average are, are close to closing in on 300K, but I would say anecdotally, we're, we're rarely seeing ransom demands that are less than seven figures. And in some cases, they're, they're multi-million dollars. Um, and with I don't know how familiar you are with Bitcoin, but if, if any one of us wanted to, even if you had $2 million cash and that was the ransom demand, you wouldn't be able to acquire $2 million Bitcoin worth of Bitcoin in 24, 48, 72 hours. Uh, so the same forensic IR firms and other partners that they have readily at their disposal have Bitcoin wallets. So if, if you decide it is prudent and you do want to go ahead and make that payment, uh, there are ways to get access to that amount of digital currency as quickly as you need to. Yeah, so it's a but it's a whole new world. Uh, in addition, new, we can't world. do our work right now. Um, we we don't need to get into it in, yeah. in detail unless you'd like to. But the only other thing I would say is, obviously, there 
beyond the morality of this issue. There's some questions of legality when you're paying a criminal group that could be on governmental watch lists like OFAC. So there's a whole other wrinkle there, right? A lot of these cyber criminal groups are, are state-sponsored groups that might be sponsored by Iran, Korea, North Korea, excuse me, China. Uh, and if any of these groups are potentially on a governmental watch list, even if you want to pay them, you might not legally be allowed to pay them nor receive a reimbursement from your insurance carrier to do so. So there's, there's a lot of compliance work and logistics that need to go into this process, and, and obviously speed is of the essence because you can't access your data while this is all happening. So that's that's where the, the value and why it's so critically important to have the right response vendors that are part of this process. Right, and and I want to talk about the, the mitigation and the minimum minimization of some of these risks. But before we do that, Dale, from your perspective, I mean, how pervasive are you seeing things um, in the in the AE industry with with, with, with firms? paying the, the, the ransom and, and you know, having the, the tools through their in, insurance to be able to sort of work through that process, or if they don't have it, you know, are, are you've seen stories of, you know, or heard of firms that didn't have the insurance and, and how did they, how do you deal at this point? Yeah, you know, the, I think of the, the cyber liability insurance as, as a really service driven insurance because it's, it's so highly technical. I mean, you know, I, I know, you know, just this and I deal with it almost every other day. Like, wish I didn't, but, um, you know, the having that, having that, that entity, that carrier, that team of forensics, that breach coach, having that team to call when you walk in on Monday morning and the entire system's down. Um, and for whatever reasons, it only happens to my clients over the weekend. I, think, I don't know if that's written in the code somewhere, but uh, it does feel that way. Um, that that you, know, you, know, you know who to activate. And with a single email or a single phone call, you, you trigger this team to, to, to jump in and support you. And uh, I agree with Rob. I mean, it, it, it's funny. I, I, I feel like three to five years ago, um, the ransomware demands were far smaller than they are now. At least that, that's what I've seen from my clients. And, and my thought then was, well, they're, they're almost coming up with a nuisance value, right? You know, just, just easier to pay $10,000 than it is to go through this, this, um, this process of figuring it all out and perhaps not turning over the data or, you know, not, not paying the ransom. Um, but the, those numbers have gone up and I think it has made what I've seen the firms and the carriers look at that harder, not to mention all the issues that Rob brings up about, you know, the legality of being able to make those payments. Um, so if you don't have a carrier, right, if you don't have a, a sophisticated team, that's, that's, well, let's, let me put it this way. If you don't have your own internal sophisticated team that could help you obtain the, 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 the digital currency and do all those things, then you are, you're at the criminals, I mean, you're, you're at their feet and, and they're gonna be able to do whatever they, you know, they want to. So having the insurance as a backstop and, and have all these service providers is, is really important. And so I, I, don't think, I don't think in that regard, the AC community is, is very different from a lot of others. And, and but, but but is your sort of facing directly into the AEC world? I mean, are you seeing this ransom um, ransomware and there's ransoms and there's ransoms being paid? Absolutely. But you know, nobody wants to talk about it, and mm -hmm. no wants you know no one's putting it up on LinkedIn, right? So um, with with you know, understandably, understandably. I mean, again, I have started to think of of of, of security for A&E firms as a competitive advantage. I mean, and it's that sort of thing. Would you, would you want it to get out? And we all know, right? I mean, we, we know that, that the criminals are pretty much one step ahead of us, at least from what I've seen. So you, you're, it's, it's not necessarily a, a knock on your firm that you had some type of breach of it. I mean, that, that's not always the case. Perhaps it might've revealed, you know, some things you needed to change, but um, but in and of itself, it's, it's not necessarily means you're not doing something right. But at the same time, who wants in this day and age with everyone being so focused on cybersecurity, uh, who, what kind of AEC wants, wants a potential client to hear about this you know, massive breach where potentially all of their information was accessed? No one. So, uh, so it leads to a more 
you know, secretive or, or less publicized type of event. Right. Well, let's let's get into the the, the risk mitigation um, and uh, you know of of the you know threat minimization and risk mitigation, Rob. With you know in, insurance costs going up and maybe even coverage uh, coverage uh, hardening, if you will. <laughs> I mean, are there sort of minimum controls now necessary to be able to access this type of insurance? I mean, what what are you seeing as far as um, you know, are there sort of the minimum thresholds you have to be doing this in order to be insured? Or even if you can get insurance, what are some of those best practices to sort of minimize your risk of, of breach? Yeah, more and more that that is becoming the reality. And, and, you know, even if it's not the threshold for where you can get insurance or not, you're, you can you can be certain your costs are going to be significantly higher if you're not doing what what have come to be viewed as sort of the baseline controls. And, and you know, as coverage continues to pull back a little bit as well, carriers are also other, putting other restrictive provisions in the policy where if you're not doing certain things from a risk management perspective, maybe the claim won't get paid or there's less dollars available to, to pay that claim. Um, you know, examples of a few things that that I sort of focus on with our clients and, and view as table stakes in, in the current climate that we're living in is having multi-factor authentication enabled across your network. And that means not just to access email, but any applications to VPN into the network, you need to have multi-factor authentication for all users. Uh, we talked about this being really a people issue at its core. So the companies that are focusing on employee security awareness training and regularly phishing their own employees with, with fake phishing emails have proved to be more resilient in dealing with these types of incidents. Um, I mentioned backups when talking about ransomware, right? The, the easiest way to, to deal with this and not have to pay the ransom demand is it for it to be a non-factor. So if, if you have backups that are regularly taken, and they're stored offline and air gaps from the internet, they're, they're not gonna be vulnerable to, to be encrypted by, by these threat actors. So that, that's a panacea to a degree there. Um, and you know, I, I think beyond that, you know, the, the other thing I would, I would tend to focus on with our clients is the incident response process, right? So I, I think there, there is some comfort that it, that underwriters take in, in understanding that your company has the right culture, you understand how severe this issue is, um, and you've done the right things both in terms of risk mitigation, but also when it does happen, here's how we know how to escalate it and who's going to be involved in the incident response process, because that means at the end of the day, it's going to be less dollars going out the door and less reputational impact to your business. And, and I know I said that was the last thing, but, but now I, I really would add one other point in that. Well, actually, I'll leave it there. I'll, I'll hand it over to Dale if he has anything to say. <laughs> I'll cover for him. Right. And well, I guess in that sense, I mean, it, it's obviously an IT issue to, to some degree, right? But, but this is the business. And so I guess, Dale, from your perspective, working with firms, um, has it reach the board level? Is it a priority of the, the, the CEO or the, the COO um, working with IT? I mean, how, how do you see that interplay with, with dealing with these sort of complex issues that, that go beyond, you know, um, is our system reliable and, and, and faster? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, the, especially with the larger AC firms, the, the CIO or the, or the equivalent, right, the, the, the information officer, that, that, that individual has a seat at the table. I mean, they, you know, they, they are very involved in what's going on um, because it is such a, I think it has reached the board level. Now, you know, there, there are exceptions. I mean, I, I meet with firms every now and then of, of great size and scale um, that, that don't, don't buy the insurance. They, they feel for whatever reason that, that they, they, they're going to attack it a, a different way. Um, obviously, it's easy, I guess, to be in the insurance brokerage world and say that that I disagree. But for the most part, I do disagree. Um, and and you know, we spend we spend a lot of time. Uh, we we have spent decades going into our clients' offices and training them 
and educating them about loss prevention, risk mitigation for professional liability claims, right? How, you know, how to avoid risky projects or what is a risky project, how to avoid certain risks on that project. And, and while we're not doing it to the level, certainly, that we do for the, the professional risk mitigation, we are spending a lot of time counseling our, our AE firms about, about this risk, about educating their people, uh, the penetration testing type things that Rob mentioned, tabletop exercises that, that can be done to, to make sure that this is high up on everyone's radar. Um, because again, like we said earlier, it, it's affecting firms of, of all sizes. So, um, you know, and another thing I would mention is, is some of these confidentiality agreements. This is completely outside of, of the topic in terms of a, an attack. Um, but, but we see more and more extremely onerous confidentiality requirements in contracts. Uh, and some of those, quite frankly, I can come up with several different ways that a breach of that confidentiality would not be a triggering event for a professional liability policy. So um, with some of these very onerous um, confidentiality provisions, a, a robust full standalone cyber program is a way to, to transfer that risk as well. Right. Well, I did want to ask you a question on how the, the, the insurance, the cyber insurance is a little different than professional liability in that. But, but there, there is this, you know, if in the industry, uh, and it might be other industries, but I know in our industry, if you're doing federal work, you've got to follow the, the CMMC, which is the, um, the, the, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, which is a higher level of, of um, security in order to work on federal projects. Are, are you seeing that? I mean, do you see it in other industries and in this industry? Is that a good method to follow? I mean, initially it was, oh, it's so onerous um, that we can't do this. Um, but do you, do you see that playing out as a way of, well, actually it, it, it's good practice uh, for you enhancing your cybersecurity risks or minimizing your risks, um, whether you're doing federal work or not? Yeah, I mean, with that particular, the CMMC, you know, and, and I'm not an expert on it. We, we've not seen it that much. I mean, my, my understanding, a lot of firms, when, when that, that came out initially, a lot of firms, firms thought, well, here's a way to differentiate ourselves, right? Let's, let's get going down that path very quickly. That'll lead, that'll separate us, that'll elevate us, that'll increase revenues, um, and, and make us more attractive to, to, you know, it was basically DOD type, type work. Um, my understanding is that the, that they, they haven't really even developed the assessors in any certain capacity to be able to really assess those firms, you know, vying for that, for that work. So, you know, I, I do think whether it's, whether it's a federal, you know, uh, federal, um, scheme like that or, or certification of, of the five levels like like is in that one or whether it's some other one that's going to relate to healthcare. Um, I, I really do think that that as I said earlier that that the clients buyers of AE services are going to be looking at those things and I think firms rightfully so are going to be looking at being ahead as far ahead of the of the of those trends and those requirements as possible to be ready to be one of the preferred vendors who can meet that criteria to immediately get that work. Uh, so it's whether it's you know the CMMC or some other one. I, I think the you know the thought process behind it and the competitive advantage that a firm will seek is is pretty similar. How uh, thank you for that. How, how hard is it or how easy is it to buy cybersecurity insurance? Is it just one policy and it kind of looks the same for everybody? Is there a bunch of different line item or coverage grants that you really have to know your firm and different firms are going to have different styles and types of coverage. I, I guess, you know, from maybe big picture, Rob, is there sort of a, a blanket generic cybersecurity or, or is it very customized? And, uh, and then maybe Dale, if you could add how, what does that look like for AEC firms? So unfortunately, and, and this is a bit of a plug for, for, you know, partnering with a specialty broker like ourselves, the answer is it's not an easy process. It, it, it never was an easy process, and it's only getting worse. Um, you have 100-plus insurers that are in the business of writing cyber liability insurance, and there's no consistency in policy wording from insurance carrier to insurance carrier, um, nor you know is the terminology that they might use and include in their policy wording the same from one carrier to another. So just because it says cyber liability doesn't mean that it's meeting your needs. 
Um, so, so working with a specialty broker that really focuses on this area within the industry, knows which carriers are strong, have a track record for writing this type of coverage, paying claims, committed to being in this marketplace is important. And when you layer on top of that landscape that we were already dealing with, the fact that the insurance marketplace has entered this challenging period in Q3, Q4 of last year, where carriers are, are pulling back on coverage and looking for rate increases year over year, it's even more important to make sure that the provisions that are being scaled back aren't material based on the priorities of your particular organization uh, and, and that you're working with a carrier that really has thought through sustainability in terms of the breadth of coverage that they're offering and how they're pricing that risk so that they can be a partner for you, not just for this renewal cycle, but for two, three, four, five years down the road. Yeah, and I would just add to that that, you know, while we're, we're so fortunate to have Rob and his team, that the, those types of coverage grants and, and bespoke policy wording, you know, we, we, I, I run to him as, his, as he probably rolls his eyes, here he comes again. But, um, you know, my, my clients, they get all the benefit of that, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. But what I've picked up on having been involved with a number of different carriers and breach response issues is it's, it's not unlike professional liability response in that one differentiator that I've seen is the, is the breach response team on the carrier side. I think uh, some do it better than others. And, it, and, and kind of going back to the, to the uh, education component of our clients, it is a, there's a lot of moving parts in a, in a breach response, a lot more than your average professional liability claim. So um, for firms that have not been through it before, um, well, yeah, well, let me say, for, for firms that have not been through it before, I, I try to get ahead of it, you know, and get with them and explain to them, okay, here's how it's going to work because, you know, it's not going to be Dale Crow dealing. You're not going to be dealing with me the whole time. I mean, there are going to be different entities, different companies, different law firms, forensics, maybe a PR firm, the carrier, our claims team, you know, it can be a lot. I mean, it really can for a firm and I don't care what size they are. If you've not been through it before, the first time you go through it and I've seen that, you know, blank stare, it, it, it can be a lot. So we try the best we can before that happens to sort of set their expectations and educate them about how it's gonna work. Um, but I think Rob said it earlier, and I meant to say this before, what the, I think the most important thing that we do, that I do as a, as a risk management partner, who's not a cyber specialist with my AE firms, is to really try to impress upon them that they need their own internal process of what to do if there is an issue, right? Um, and, and we will sit down and go through sort of a, you know, a chart. Here's, here's what you need to do. Uh, now, sometimes it can be as simple as just call me and we'll, we'll flip the switch, you know, and start, start the action. Um, but I, 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 see, I see too many firms not react quickly enough, uh, frankly, who, who will just say, well, you know, we're talking with our IT folks and we're looking into it. And, and it, should be, it should be a really proactive reporting type situation is my opinion. And um, so s educating the, the insured, the client on, on what, what the process will look like and what's expected of them and what they need to do. Uh, to me, that, that's a big part of the way I see my role. And, and um, that's a good point with that. It's just, it's one more emergency action plan that is just good business practice to have as it relates to your data and security. Um, exactly. there's, there's one other area, and this maybe Dale is tapping into your uh, professional liability hat. Uh, and you've mentioned it before, you know, with, with, with cyber, right? With, with the risks um, of being compromised and, and the work that we're doing and that maybe we're um, seen as access to a, another one of our clients. Um, how do you see cyber risk um, and, and minimizing those risks as something, you know, I think it's your term, the, the, the ever evolving standard of care that, I mean, you mentioned it might be contractual. I mean, are there things that we're gonna have to protect even more because maybe the standard of care might change? I mean, what would, I guess, anecdotally, or, or have yeah. you seen areas, and I put it in the context of, I mean, there was not too long ago, a small Florida town um, water system, or, community or district, whatever it was, a small uh, potable water system in Florida that was attacked and the chemical doses were changed. Now, fortunately, somebody recognized that and changed them back. And, and to my knowledge, nobody was hurt. Um, but is there a risk 
to a firm that might have provided that SCADA system, um, somebody, a, a, another firm that might have been doing some operational help um, that got hacked. It, it, and so how do you, from an operational perspective or from a design perspective, if something is hacked on the inside to get information or after the design is in place, if we didn't design certain things in place, but this is a long-winded way to ask you, what do you think about, is there some threat to the standard of care evolving as it relates to cyber that would be good to be aware about and have conversations around? Okay, short answer, yes, I think so. Uh, long question, short answer, yes. Uh, I think to, to expand on that, um, you know, it, and, and this is this is theoretical in some sense, some sense at this point. So I think that the takeaway, you know, hard takeaway is just, I would suggest firms keep their keep their ear on the ground on this, right? And and be very in tune to what types of projects and clients are being, you know, are, are more high value targets, right? Or more seeing more issues. Um, but you know, we have seen weather uncertainty, active shooters, right? These sorts of things, we that is that does move the standard of care along the way. Um, the standard of care does evolve. I mean, it evolves and we're looking into how, how will COVID change the standard of care? And certainly it will, right? So I think, um, I think it's not a stretch by any sense of the imagination to think that, that as municipalities or, you know, transportation groups or, you know, whatever, these, these entities that are building projects, they look to the design community to, to give them information about what they need to produce their project, right? I mean, the, what is the design criteria? We have seen, I mentioned, I mentioned active shooter, and this is off, I don't wanna go down a rabbit hole, but we have seen states who are looking the way they design their schools, right? We, we wanna be prepared for this. Well, who do they go to ask how to do that? They go to the engineers, right? So, um, and it's, well, how should we, how should we design this building to, 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 to sort of mitigate this risk? Now, while engineers are not building IT infrastructure, it's a very, that's a very different thing. I do think in terms of security, security of systems, um, certainly physical security of rooms for servers and, and those sorts of information that could run complicated process. I think of process engineers, right, who are, who are developing uh, designs for, for various manufacturers. I think absolutely. Right. You, you know, if, if you are a design consultant who's been hired by some type of owner that, that is ready to, to design and construct what, what, what you as the designer know is a common target, I don't think it is a stretch to say that a claim could come in and they will find an engineer who will say, well, the standard of care required you to do X, Y, and Z. The beauty of this is I'm not an engineer. So by my sitting up here and opining all of this, I can't change the standard of care. So that's a good thing. So everybody can, you know, not get mad at me because I, you know, I have seen situations in in other walks of life, non cybersecurity, where I think, you know, we we are we we are moving the standard of care into uncharted waters. And and as everyone probably knows in your audience, but just as a you know a gentle reminder, you know, what standard of care is is the level at which you find li liability, right? So. I mean, that is, the, that is the minimum threshold. Hit the standard of care, or if you fall below the standard of care, you now have legal liability. So, you know, it's a long-winded way to say, I, I think it's an interesting topic. I, I, don't, I don't know where it goes, um, but I think you're short-sighted if you don't think that we are moving in that direction. And honestly, I would, everything, go ahead, Rob. I was just gonna say quickly, I mean, I, I think beyond the potential for increased liability, and, and this kind of goes back to Dale's earlier point, it, it's, if not doing the right things, do you limit how viable you are commercially in a go-forward state? And it's not just dealing with the federal government or municipalities, but you've got other industries that are heavily regulated that not only dictate what those industries have to do, but any vendors that they use, regardless of what level of access that, that vendor might have, they have to adhere to the same controls. So think about financial services firms in New York State. You think about uh, you know, business associates of healthcare entities. The possibilities are endless, and, and just from a maturity standpoint, regardless of in, in, industry, you've got Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies. If those are your customers, their requirements for what vendors need to adhere to, both in terms of their risk management, but also their insurances that they purchase, are so rigid, and, and they're not really deviating from that, regardless of what the scope of the engagement might look like. 
Right, right. And it, well, it's just, it, it's just an, another element that, you know, architecture firms and, and engineering firms that as it relates to cyber, but really uh, as the, the, the field evolves and how client and customer, you know, um, needs evolve, that we've got to stay on top of them. I mean, especially as Dale mentioned, I, we, you know, as their professional, um, you know, vendors or their professional consultants or people who are helping to drive strategy to protect them moving forward. Um, well, as, as we close, we could talk about this. I mean, I don't know if I want to, it's a little scary, but I mean, we could talk about this, you know, as a way to sort of bring something to light. So we're, we're better protected and we can better serve, you know, our clients and society better. So I, I say that in jest, it scares me a little bit, but it does. Um, but anyway, so I want to thank you for bringing this up. But I mean, as, as we close, I mean, is there anything that we haven't covered um, or something else that you'd like to share or, or emphasize in order to help leaders um, of engineering and architecture firms really understand the, these cyber risks in ways that they can sort of um, mitigate them through different strategies? Yeah, I think I'd probably close by just saying question everything. I mean, one thing we didn't talk about is, is you know, we talked about the human capital issue and, and your weak link sometimes being employees doing something wrong, but same concept applies to, to vendors that your firm itself is partnering with. So whether that be, you know, an outside outsourced IT service firm, question what they're doing, what's the level of access they have, are they using the right technologies that have been secured, uh, but also just question everything that you do in your own dealings with your clients, how you're communicating, what you do in your personal lives. Um, you know, the more we're diligent about that personally and professionally, I think the, the better chance we have of, of avoiding that those issues and being the weak link ourselves. Yeah, I don't want to be repetitive. That, that's, that's almost exactly what I would say. Keep, keep you know, understand that, that this is a main risk for, for you as an architect engineering firm um, and, and put it, you know, put it high up on your, your radar and your, your level of lists of, of things that you're, you're focused at at the board level. Um, even if you don't, even if you don't buy it, you know, talk, talk to an insurance specialist who focuses on cyber liability and, and, you know, listen to things like, like this podcast and this presentation, um, educate yourself on it. Right. I, I, you know, I, like I said, I, I didn't want to learn that much about it. I'm like you, Pete, it, it scares me at times, but you know, I, I feel like if I don't know enough to at least counsel my clients, you know, halfway down the road before bringing in Rob, then, then I'm not doing my job. Um, because, I will tell you, I have firms that have had worse cyber issues in the last year than they have any professional issue. And I mean professional liability. So um, so that's what I would say in closing. Great. Um, well, thank you. I, I, you know, I just want to say it, it is alarming when this happens. I mean, I, I've had brute force attacks on my website on, on, on some of my. And so it is sort of unnerving when you talk to your, you know, um, folks in, in, in my IT saying, are we okay? Are we up? I mean, it's just it, all these things outside of your control. And that's just me and, you know, that, that my, my relatively small practice. Um, but how can listeners um, get in touch with you to learn more um, about both of you and, and about risk strategies? Uh, well, I would encourage everybody to go to our website, uh, riskstrategies.com, uh, and there'll be, there's a knowledge center there, talks about A&E issues, talks about, of course, cyber and Rob's team. Um, and then uh, you know how to get a hold of me. And I'm on LinkedIn, of course. And, and my email address is dcrow at riskstrategies.com. So uh, please reach out if, if we can be helpful in any way. Great. And we'll, no, no, we'll, nothing to add there. <laughs> right. We'll put, we'll, we'll put email links to, to both Dale and Rob in the show notes. Um, well, I want to thank you both for coming on and, and digging into this topic because it is high on the, the minds of a lot of folks. And there is, because it's not talked, it's talked about, but it's not really talked about in detail and actionable detail to really help firm leaders understand the magnitude of what we're up against and maybe some of the strategies that are out there and really what recourse they have um, to, to protect themselves. So I really want to thank you for, um, for opening up and sharing with us um, about what we can do with respect to minimizing our cyber risk. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. All right. Well, look forward to seeing you again and take care. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so. 
And please also share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to continue to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. And it also helps to get the word out to others so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.